Good morning. Good, good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah, Old Testament book. Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 is what we're looking at this morning. Good to have you with us on this hot summer day. You guys enjoying the heat? Yes. Oh, yes. It's not hot enough yet. How many think it's not hot enough yet? Oh, you desert rats, you. You guys are messed up. You've had too much heat go right here, huh? That's what's happened. We've got a great study here this morning. This is our Ignite series, part two, Fuel. As you guys well know that the book of Nehemiah, it really tells us, shows us that uh, God is in the business of rebuilding brokenness. That's chapters one through seven. We looked at that before Easter. And he's also in the business of reviving deadness. Those are uh, verses eight, or not verses, but chapters eight through 13. That's where we are currently. And we started last weekend talking about the spirit-filled life. Spirit-filled life or revival is an experience, is an experience of your Father in heaven sweeping you up into his arms of love and smothering you with his affection, with kisses. There's those moments in our lives where we just feel that God is not a concept, he's a reality. Those would be that, that spirit-filled experience or that, that revival kind of experience. And in fact, we defined revival last week because that's what's happening here in the book of Nehemiah in chapters 8 through 13. They're experiencing this reviving, revival, thus why we called it Ignite. And revival is an intensification of the normal work of the Holy Spirit where Christ becomes more real to you. Uh, John sixteen fourteen says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said to his disciples, they were a little bit panicked over the fact that he was going to leave them. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to abandon you. The Holy Spirit's going to come. In fact, he will glorify me. He will make me more real to you, in essence, is what he's saying. And in fact, so the spirit-filled life or revival would be, it would be the presence and the power and the peace of God becomes so real to us that the trials and the trauma and the temptations of life uh, kind of fade in the background. They, they don't become so, uh, so harsh. They don't harass us so vividly. And so, so we all pray for, we pray regularly for revival, not only to this church, but to this land, to our nation, to our lives individually, but also to us corporately. And in fact, I believe, I believe that Christians are the happiest people in the world when they live in the reality of what they have through the sacrificial love of Christ, regardless of their circumstances. The problem is is that we don't always live in the reality of that. Therefore, we need to understand what it means to be spirit-filled. We need to pray for that, and we need a revival in our hearts and lives because we tend to be overwhelmed by the trials and the temptations and the trauma of life. And so revival is where Christ becomes more real to us. Hopefully that's why you came to church today, that Christ would become more real, that you would have an encounter with Christ himself. You would encounter Jesus. You're not just checking the church box, but you've come in here because you want to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ more than you ever have before so that in your life you can show him more contagiously through your life. 
And uh, so there's three components of fire. We talked about that. Heat, fuel, oxygen. And the heat, we talked about it last week, is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. And that's what chapter 8 is. And then chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah is about the fuel. It's about a heart of repentance. So we could put it like this. We could say thus far, this is kind of the thesis statement. So revival, and when we, when we begin to experience really more of that spirit-filled life and what they're experiencing here in Nehemiah, it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, igniting the hearts of the people of God with a passion for the Son of God. So here, here's the question is what, what goes on in our hearts when we study God's word? When we gather together, what should go on in our hearts? So if God's word, the Holy Spirit working through God's word, what should take place? What kind of transaction should happen? And what kind of transaction should happen so that my heart is ignited with a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ unlike ever before? That's a good question for us to, to think about. So when you pray, when you get together in a small group, when you read your Bible, when we gather regularly, what should happen in our lives? That's what we're going to see here this morning. And what should happen is that we should have hearts of repentance. Let me just talk a little bit about repentance, okay? Because that's what it's all about. It's about repentance. So it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and lives of the people of God. So hearts of repentance that then there's this igniting of our passion for the Son of God. So what does that mean, repentance? Is that what's supposed to happen, Pastor Ray, every time I read the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. As you walk with the Lord each and every day, there should be this repentant heart, and therefore you're making yourself uh, available for the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, particularly through his word. So repentance is turning from sin and trusting in the Savior. So it's turning from sin. We're going to talk a little bit about what the foundation of that is or kind of fundamentally what what sin is. A lot of different different definitions of sin. So it's turning from sin to the Savior, trusting in in the Savior. In fact, I put a verse on your notes. You can look this up on your own later. Acts uh, 3.19 gives us a good definition. And he says here, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What is he talking about there? He's, times of refreshing is revival. Times of refreshing would be that spirit-filled experience. Let me give you a couple of quick definitions of repentance. Uh, One is by John Piper. He says, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all praise and all our obedience, worthy of all of our obedience. And then uh, Charles Spurgeon Uh, Put it this way, repentance is a change of mind which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. So it would be a turning from sin to trust in the Savior. It's, It's the illustration you've heard me use many times before of my grandson. That would be repentance. My grandson, when he first started coming to our house, our oldest grandson, we've got six grandsons now, and that's pretty cool. And we're working for 12. We're just, okay, maybe not. But uh, six is enough. I'm, I'm overloaded with six. That's plenty. And, um, but the oldest, when he first came in, he found Russell's old room that we kind of turned into a little 
toy room. We kept all of our kids' toys, and so the, he kn- knew where it was. So immediately when he came into the house, it's not hi, Grandma, Grandpa. It's just kind of grunt and go to the right to the, to the playroom. And uh, that was when he was little. And now he comes up and just throws himself at me, and I absolutely love it. But, but he would go and get toys in the toy room, and I'll never forget this. We were kind of watching him, and he just loved cars at that time. It was all he could say. He's a true boy, huh? Cars, 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 cars. And so he's walking out, and he's got his arms full of cars. He couldn't add another car to his arms. And so he's got his arms full of cars, and he's coming out here, and he goes, cars, cars, cars. And then he does one of these double takes and looks over and sees this candies on the coffee table. Guess what he does with the cars? He repents. It's repentance. You got, he got rid of the cars and ran to the coffee table for those candies. And then, of course, over time we learned we have no candies out on the table because a few candies and they're out of control, okay? And so we kind of learned that really quick. We immediately put all the candies up because we would load them up on candy and then they would go crazy and then we were crazy and then we'd want, our, the, want them to leave really quick. And, uh, and so, but, but what did he do? He repented. That's what repentance is. And, and when you begin to get a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of Christ, you begin to see that sin is really ridiculous. It's like, why would I do that? Why would I pursue that? Why would I chase that? That's the idea of what we're looking at. That's what happens in our hearts and lives as we study God's word. He reveals our sin to us and we repent. We turn from sin. We trust in, in our Savior. And, uh, and, and you need to know this. Repentance is not a bad thing. If you think of the word repentance as something bad, it, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. Uh, and in fact, in Luke 15, 20, check this out. This is so cool. Luke 15, 20. Remember the, the, the prodigal son's story, the two prodigals? They were actually both prodigals, the one that went out and spent the inheritance on wild living and prostitutes, and the other one stayed at home. He left the father without leaving the, the farm, And so they were both prodigals, but what was interesting about the younger one when he came home, it was the father's kiss that brings, that brought his repentance, and it was not his repentance that brought the father's kiss. You can study that and confirm that in Luke 15, 20. That's what happens in our lives. It's the father's kiss that brings our repentance, not our repentance that brings the father's kiss. That's the reason why I said that uh, the Spirit-filled life, kind of a glimpse of that would be the Father God sweeping us up into his arms of love and smothering us with kisses. Literally, that's what he did with his, uh, I don't know if he swept him up into his arms. It doesn't say that, but it did say that he kissed him. Literally, the Greek says he smothered his younger son with kisses. And so it's the kiss of the Father that brings repentance. We begin to look at our lives and go, why would I chase after this stuff when I have him? See, this is a Christian life. You go, man, I'm not... See, he came to his senses, and then as he's coming out to his father, the father runs out to him and loves on him. That's what you need. That's what you need more than anything. See, if you find yourself dabbling in sin and chasing after all these things in the world that you know you shouldn't be doing, it's the father's love that draws you back. It's the kiss of the Father. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what repentance is, and that's what they're experiencing here in Nehemiah. And, um, and repentance is to be a way of life. 1 John 1, chapter 1, starting at verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 6, makes that clear. So it's just, you know, we're constantly making course corrections. I find myself throughout the day making these course corrections. 
you know, my heart being drawn away here. I find myself responding inappropriate over there. And I'm making these course corrections as I, as I turn from sin and begin to trust in the Savior. Another opportunity to trust in him and to look to, to, to my Savior. So that's where we're headed. Let me pray. We'll dive into our text. Let's pray. If you bow your heads with me. I'd like to pray uh, Psalm 36, 5 through 9 this morning. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. May we feast on the abundance of your house this morning and drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. Ignite our hearts with a passion for your son, our savior, Jesus, that ruins us for anything else we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let me read the text. And and so... You can see that the notes are laid out with those two ideas. Turn from sin and trust in the Savior. So when you're studying God's word, you will turn from sin. You're turning from sin and trusting in the Savior. That's what we need to do. That's repentance. And, uh, and as I said last week, Bible study is meant to redirect our wondering heart to their true destination and most satisfying reality, our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we study God's word, we're not... We're not just looking for life lessons, though there are plenty of life lessons here. We're going beyond the life lessons, and we're craving a glimpse of God who can satisfy our soul. He's the only one that can ultimately satisfy our soul. That's why we study God's Word. And so let me read just these first uh, few verses. Psalm, or I'm Psalm, Nehemiah, we're in Nehemiah, yes we are. Uh, chapter 9. Verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, so they've read God's word, they felt the conviction, they've celebrated as a result of what God is doing in their lives as, as God's word is, as I stated, it's redirecting their wandering hearts back to their true destination, most satisfying reality, God. And so now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day from Oh, I like that, for a quarter of a day. Do you notice that they read the Bible a lot in this book, especially as we've had, how much is a quarter of a day? I'm thinking probably they're just talking about daylight here. So what is that, about two to three hours? If it's a 12-hour day of daylight? So they read the Bible here for about two to three hours. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, and I won't read the rest of the names, and, uh, and there's a number of people here. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight leaders, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Let's stop there. And then we're going to, what we're going to do the rest of the chapter is kind of uh, hop, skip, and jump through it. But this first part kind of helps us as they are, they've read God's word, they've encountered God, they repent, and then they cry out and worship God. 
So what is going on? Well, they're, they're doing this. They're turning from sin and trusting in God. So let's talk about turning from sin. What is the essence of sin? And we could, we could define it in a lot of different ways. This is what we're gonna, how we're going to define it here. If you can get a handle on this, you're going to begin to see some major change take place in your life. It wasn't until I understood what I'm about to tell you uh, that I began to experience really major change in my life. I was kind of caught, kind of circling the mountain in my life in a number of areas in my life until I came across this understanding of sin. And here it is. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. How many try to fill in the blanks before I actually get to, get to them? Anybody out there? And did, did anybody get it right? Okay, excellent. Yeah, you guys are tracking with me. So idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. This is what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know what the number one of the top ten lists of the ten commandments, what's the first commandment? What is the first commandment? Because you need to know the first commandment because we break two through ten in direct proportion to how we've already violated the first one. See if the people next to you know what that is. Real quick. Okay, uh, anybody want to yell out to me? You, you should. Okay, that's actually uh, two, but that's a good one. That's right in there with it. Two or three. No other gods before me, but that's right on there. The first three, actually the first four, deal with our relationship with God. Good, good one, though. Good try. Um, but it, it starts off, you shall have no other gods before me. And then it talks about idols and then not taking his name in vain and then the Sabbath. And then what, which one comes next? Pop quiz. It's actually honor mom and dad. And so, you, so as you kind of work through that, but this is what's interesting about it, is that um, when, it says, when it says, have no other gods before me, notice there's not a third option. You will either worship the true and living uncreated God of the Bible, or you will worship another God. You shall have no other gods before me. So you're going to either worship God or you worship God, little g. And in fact, it is not possible for you to not adore something, to not build your identity, significance, and happiness on something. It's not possible. You are building your identity, significance, happiness on something. And what he says, build it on me. Because I'm the only foundation that's big enough to be able to handle your life. Any other foundation, your life, it's going to collapse. So this is one of the reasons why I really believe, many reasons why I believe in God and believe that there is a God because there's something inside of you. You have to adore something. You have to make much of something, whatever it might be. And God created that within us to be worshipers of him. But what we typically do is we substitute that and it creates all kinds of problems in our lives. And in fact, 1 John 5.21 is an interesting verse. John, remember you got the 12 disciples and then you had this little inner circle of three. You guys remember the inner circle of three? 
Peter, James, and John. And so John had this close relationship with Jesus. And so they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection along with all the other disciples. But they had this very close relationship. And in 1 John, he talks about this level of intimacy. In fact, he's just really stoked. He's excited. In the first few verses, he just says, man, we were there. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. And in fact, we're telling you this because we want you to have the same kind of intimacy, fellowship, relationship that we have with him. So that your joy might be complete. And the completeness of our joy comes as a result of fellowshipping with him. And then it goes on in the book and talks about what that looks like. Then it goes on to talk about how our love, his love for us, causes us to want to love him and then love others in our lives. And then he ends the book almost abruptly, just like that. Little children, do not follow idols or do not have idols in your life. Basically, just like that, boom, have no idols in your life. And you go, what? Basically, he's summarizing all of the Christian life. Both our love of God and love of one another, all of what we are to do, there's only one thing that can keep us from the joy of God and keep us from living the kind of life that he expects us, and that's idolatry. It's to add anything to God as a requirement for your happiness. And we do it all the time. It's why we get irritated when the line is long at the store or somebody cuts us off. Oh, my happiness is more important than his glory. I mean, you wouldn't say that, but that's what you're saying in essence. That's what, how you're living it out. Our irritations, our attitude, we make life all about us. See, fundamentally, that's... If you start diving down, you begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm worshiping something other than God. I'm worshiping me. I'm worshiping this. I'm worshiping that. This is more important to me than, than, than God. And that's the only thing that can really rob us of our, of our joy. Idolatry isn't one sin among many, but the root of all of our sins. Idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. So if you really want to experience change, I mean, Nancy and I, we begin to experience more and more change, more so me than her. I needed more change than she did, really, if you know her and know me. And I, I had made her an idol. And it was her affirmation of me. And it was almost like God was saying, hello, hello, hey, 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 I'm here. I died on the cross for you, you know. You know, kind of like, huh. and, and you're freaking out over the fact that she won't affirm you? Okay, that's your love language. But I died for you. And it wasn't until I began to go, wait, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, you know what, you're right, I'm not living in the reality of all that you've done for me, because if I did, that would be pretty small, that would be lower on the, on the pole, on the list of, of things that are really important to me. In fact, I wouldn't even be adding it as a requirement for my happiness. And uh, idolatry is looking to some created thing to give us the meaning and hope and happiness that only the creator himself can give to us. Sin is what we do when, when our heart is not satisfied with God. Let me read to you a quick story here. This is from Tim Keller's book. It's a great book, Counterfeit Gods. I'll bet you you won't be able to get very far in it without feeling really, really convicted if you read it. And it was really good for me and it's really helpful and I keep coming back to it because it helps me to kind of work through my own idolatry because I have a lot of idols in my heart just like your heart is an idol factory. And that's what we struggle with day in and day out. It's always about idolatry. That's what we struggle with. This is a story of Mary, a young woman named Mary. This is Tim Keller's book. So he's going to uh, 
reference a gal that he knew in one of his previous church experiences. A young woman named Mary was an accomplished musician who once attended my church, and for many years she had battled mental illness and had checked in and out of psychiatric institutions. She gave me permission as her pastor to speak to her therapist so my pastoral guidance to her could be well-informed. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her, her counselor told me. And they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She is quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession. And she cannot live with the idea that she has disappointed her parents. End of quote from her therapist. Medications helped to manage her depression, but they could not get to the root to the root of her problem, to the root of it. Her problem was a false belief driven by an idol. She told herself, if I cannot be a well-known violinist, I have let my parents and my life is a failure. I've let my parents down and and my life is a failure. Now, Now think about that. All of us do that with something. It might not be being a violinist. It might be getting married, having kids, how your kids turn out the career you're pursuing, making a certain amount of money. We all do that. We all do that. We all tend to substitute God with something or someone else. She was distressed and guilty enough to die. When Mary began to believe the gospel, that she was saved by grace, not by musicianship, and that though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord shall take me in, Psalm 2710. She began to get relief from her idolatrous need for her parents' approval. In time, her depression and anxiety began to lift, and she was able to reenter her life and musical career. So, so fundamentally, it's, it's, uh, it's idolatry is what we struggle with. And so how do you identify the idols? I've taken you through this list before. You have to, it says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So what you treasure will get a hold of your heart. The Bible uses the word heart some 900 times. So when it talks about the heart, it's not only talking that that which we treasure, but the influence our treasure has on our mind. In fact, the fill in the blank here are your thoughts, emotions, and actions. So here's the questions you have to ask. And And I go through these questions and I look at my life regularly. And as I study God's word, I'm constantly... Uh, reviewing these things, but what dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotions, and what do your actions effortlessly spend money and time on? So time and money are really important to us, and so where where do you effortlessly give your money and time? And so let me go through these very quickly. So when you think about your thoughts, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. For me, because I was a workaholic, it went to work. And because I tend to be a people pleaser, it went to these brain debates of interaction that I had with other people. And I've got plenty of other idols I'm not going to tell you about this morning. But, uh, but there are other issues that would begin to dominate my thoughts. Now, now this is where it really began to help me is what stirs your deepest emotions, And for me as a pastor, when I got more excited about the finances and the attendance of this church than I did the cross of Jesus Christ, I knew that there was a major problem going on in my life, that there was some idolatry. You're more concerned about the success of this church than the success that I have already given to you through the cross. 
So I, and, I, and I knew that. That's a trampling on who he is and what he offers me. I'm not living in the reality. Remember what I said. I said, I believe that the, that the Christians, Christians should be the happiest people on this planet, but they're not. There are some that are. And it's only because they're living in the reality of all that the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ gives to them that trumps everything in their lives. It's fabulous. It's fantastic when you begin to understand that. And, uh, and so what stirs your deepest emotions? And so building your worth on anything other than Christ is an idol, and it will control you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it because you, your heart was not meant to, to try to fill that void with, with something in creation. It was meant for the creator. So it will disappoint you when you get it. It'll never be enough. And it's going to devastate you when you lose it. I mean, it just makes sense. You give your heart to, to something that's temporal and you lose it. That's your life you just lost. But you give it to the Savior. You're not losing him. He's always with you. If he's your supreme pleasure, even if you were to lose everything but him, you still have your pleasure. You have him. You have him. Don't you understand what you have in him? It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful when you begin to understand the Christian life. And you begin to live that spirit-filled life and you're experiencing almost a personal revival and you're so desperately wanting everybody to understand that. But you're having to fight for it yourself each and every day. But, but idolatry is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. That's the reason why when sometimes I hear people say, uh, my wife and I had this discussion here recently, and she said that she saw a bumper sticker where it said, family is everything. It's like, oh. There are some church people that say that. It's not everything. One of these days you're going to die, or they're going to die, or somebody's going to die. And you can't build your identity on your family. It's, it's not. It's about Jesus. And then out of that, you have family or any number of other things. Because if you got a good thing, would you guys say a family is a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. How about marriage? It's a good thing. How about having kids? It's a good thing. Yeah. How about having a career? That's a good thing. I'm not disdaining any of that, but I'll tell you what. When that good thing, if it's threatened... You're going to worry, and that's normal. That can motivate you appropriately. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing and it's threatened, you're not just going, you're not going to just worry. You're going to be paralyzed with fear and, and actually fall apart. So if you're falling apart and you're paralyzed with fear, it's probably because you have overly attached your heart to something that's temporal, something that's finite, as opposed to something that is eternal and uh, something that is uh, like God. So if you have a good thing, if you have a good thing, you know, having a career is a good thing and having a job is a good thing, but, uh, and if it's blocked, you become angry. You know, you didn't get the promotion. He gave it to his, you know, the boss gave it to his, uh, his son or daughter or whatever. And, and so it's normal to be angry, but if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just angry, you're bitter. You have rage. If you really look at bitterness that people have, and usually you can stockpile quite a bit of it, your bitterness is based on the fact that you didn't get what you think that you need to get, and somebody has gotten and interfered with that. Somehow, someone has interfered with that, and it's rooted in some kind of idolatry. And then if you have a good thing and you lose it, you're sad, but if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're going to be depressed and even suicidal. Many of the suicides that I went on as a, as a pastor and as a medic, many times it was because these people had built their life on this person, usually it was a person, 
Once it was, I remember it wasn't a person, it was more of their job and it really messed them up, but they, their whole identity was gone because of that person being gone or that job was gone. So, so you look, you, what's, what stirs your deepest emotions and then what do your actions effortlessly spend money and time on? What we're doing here, basically, Romans one twenty five, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we're worshiping and serving created things more than the creator. That's what we're doing because we're worshipers by nature. We are adoring this, thinking that we're, we're saying this to ourselves, whether we realize it or not. We're saying, if I have this, life has meaning and purpose. When I began to understand that, it made a major difference in my life. I quit being so, so ugly and mean and nasty and bitter and anxious and, and depressed. and it, just elimin- it eliminated a lot of that stuff in my life because Jesus became my supreme pleasure. And then here's the next one. So how do you, how do you work through these? Affections for idols are broken by greater affections for Christ. And affections for Christ are awakened and nurtured by his affections for us. So how do we, how do we get rid of these idols? Be, through greater affections for Christ. We repent. We begin to say, wow, why am I playing in the mud puddle? That's sin. That's what C.S. Lewis says. He calls it, he uses this analogy of mud puddle. I'm playing, making mud pies when there's a Caribbean cruise waiting for me in Jesus Christ. Why am I dumpster diving when I can go to claim jumper? See, that's, see, when you begin to see sin as that, you know, in, com, in contrast to what you have in Jesus, you're going to be able to, you're going you're gonna to run from sin. You will, Jesus said this, you'll cut your arm off and pluck out your eye. You will take drastic measures to keep yourself from going in that direction so that you can have what you have in Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 uh, gives some really good insight here. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, that's pretty prestigious. But he said, no, nope, don't need that. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, this dude knew what was going down. He goes, all that stuff, all the wealth of the Egyptians and all that, that's nothing. All the wealth that we have in here in America, that's nothing. I'll give that up in a heartbeat if I can have Jesus. See, that's, that's what he's saying here. He says, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the, repro- the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Those are really powerful verses. I gave you a few more verses there too. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about all of his accolades and accomplishments and achievements. And basically, he says it's worthless. All that stuff's worthless. What? Wait, wait, wait. Paul, you've got a lot of accomplishment, man. You, you're really something in, in the mind of this world. They, they really put you up on a pedestal. That's nothing. It's worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus. He says, compared to Jesus, nah. It's his love for us that stirs up our love for him. Let me read to you another quick story I think would be helpful. So as you're kind of working through this, and we'll be able to knock out the rest of it uh, pretty quick, but let me read this story. This is John Flavel, Treatise of the Soul of Man, 1680. Puritan. This guy's dead, okay? Uh, You knew that. 1680. Check this out. So he has this, he, he says, I set out that day to examine the state of my soul and to think of the life 
to come, a day of prayer and self-examination. So that's what you're seeing with the Nehemiah in this story. As they're studying God's word, they're examining their lives, they're studying God's word, God, they're having this encounter with God. Remember what I said, you want your heart to be uh, ignited with a passion for Jesus, so when you encounter God through his word, he's going to reveal our idols, the things we're clinging to, and we're going to begin to rid ourselves of those things so that we can embrace fully all that he has for us. So this is what this guy says. So he spends the day in prayer and self-examination. Check this out. After a while, I found my thoughts fixed and so much closer to these great and astonishing truths than I have ever usually experienced. I found my heart rising to these truths with a liveliness and a vigor. My thoughts begin to swell and rise until they were an overwhelming flood. He's having a personal revival. It's a spirit-filled life. He's encountering Christ. The father is sweeping him up into his arms of love and smothering him with kisses. Christ is becoming more real to him through this experience. Such were the ravishing taste of heavenly joys and my assurance of partaking of them that I utterly lost sight of the world for several hours. And I didn't know any more where I was than if I had been asleep on my bed. And then he goes on and says... I went to an inn where, where he continued to commune with God and no matter who he was talking to, I mean, he didn't stop communing with God. He continued to commune with God and he continued to have conversation. It didn't mean that he talked, talked to God, you know, uh, or people thought he was crazy. You know, I'm carrying a conversation with God and you come up and start talking to me and I turn and talk to God some more. And then he wasn't doing that is what he's saying here. I couldn't help meditating on his glory I couldn't help praying. I couldn't help sensing his love overflowing me all night. I wasn't able to get to sleep. The next day, I got back on my horse, and within a few hours, I was aware of the ebbing of the tide, and, my, and by nightfall, there was a sweet serenity upon my spirit, yet the transports of joy were there ever after. So he had this encounter with God as he began to examine his life. God revealed things to him. He began to turn from those things and turn towards the Savior. And the Savior began to meet him there. And he had this amazing experience with God. And so we turn from sin. We recognize our idols and then we trust in the Savior. Now, the rest of the chapter, let me just hop, skip, and jump, is what it's, I laid it out for you. It talks about celebrating the greatness of God, verses 5 and 6, the goodness of God. He goes through the whole history of the nation of Israel and just shows how God was good to them, verses 7 through 30. And then the grace of God, verses uh, 31 through 38. Let me just hop, skip, and jump through these. Let's start with verse 5, second half of verse 5. This group of uh, Levites stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. So, so they're repenting. There's this repentance going on in their life. They're confessing their sin and they're turning from sin and now they're trusting in God. They're celebrating and worshiping God. The greatness, the goodness, and the grace of God. Stand up and bless the Lord your God for everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Then jump to verse seven. He gets into the goodness of God. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of, of your Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And then jump to verse nine. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers 
in Egypt and heard their cry at the Dead Sea, verse 10, and performed signs and wonders, jump to verse 11, and you divided the sea before them, verse 12, by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. So you're seeing, he's just talking about the history, and look at the goodness of God as he, he called them out, and he's leading and guiding and directing. But in the midst of that, it says... Um, It says, but they, verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments, which is typical for us as we find ourselves wandering away from God for the slightest reason. Our hearts are idol factories. And then jump to verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. So they were doing this in the wilderness. He doesn't forsake them. Jump to verse 21. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lack nothing. And then verse 22, it talks about them entering into the promised land. And then in verse 26, it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. It's all about idolatry. We begin to prefer something over God. And yet, jump to verse 31 where it starts talking about the grace of God. Therefore, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And the rest of the chapter talks about that. So let me give you some fill-in-the-blanks on your notes. So when you turn from sin, you recognize your idolatry in your heart, and you begin to turn from that, this is, this is what happens in your life. When you see your heart being turned toward idols, you have to stop your heart and look at Jesus giving you the very thing your heart wants from the idol. If sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with with Christ, I must rejoice in how Christ satisfies me specific to the need I'm trying to have met through the idol. So if you have a problem with porn... You begin to dig deep into your heart and you begin to find out, why is my heart so attracted to this stuff? And you begin to look to see how God can meet your need. When he becomes more attractive to you and more satisfying than the porn, you're going to drop the porn. So, so what's going to happen in your life? You have to stir that appetite up for God within you. You've got to celebrate. You've got to, all you can do is to turn from it, but you've got to begin to stir up greater appetite. Or it could be shopping. You just spend money like crazy. You're trying to fill a need inside of you. It could be saving. Maybe you don't spend. You just save. You save way too much. You should be giving more. There are people that are like that. Or it could be, you know, people pleasing. I mean, you just, you're so easily hurt. Someone criticizes you. just like, oh, you know, you, you have a blow up or you have a meltdown or whatever. So it's in those moments as you recognize your emotions going off, you know, in the meter. It's like, wow, why am I overreacting? What's going on here? It's during those times I must rejoice in how Christ satisfies me specific to the need I'm trying to have met through the idol. This is no simple thing. This is what it means to live out the Christian life. That's why it's important to fill your heart up with Jesus. And when you come, is to have an encounter with him. Your ability, your defense against the junk in this world is directly related to, to your being satisfied in him. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in him. So the best thing you can do when we gather together is to find your deepest satisfaction in him. Fill your heart. Maximize. My goal for you when you come here is you would maximize your enjoyment in God when you come here on a weekend service. My, my job is to help you to do that. Because that will prepare you for anything in life. So let me give you some fill in the blanks here. So when I'm overwhelmed by trials, I'm forgetting his greatness. See, that's what's happening. And when I'm led astray by temptations, I'm forgetting his goodness. 
So I'm forgetting his greatness with, with trials. This trial's overwhelming. I can't do it anymore. Wait a minute. He's great. He's awesome. He's with you. He hasn't left you. He loves you. I'm, I keep over, I'm overcome by this temptation. Listen, he's much more attractive. He's look to him, trust in him. And then here's the next one. By the way, when, when people sin, when we sin, we all sin. We sin because it offers a promise of pleasure. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin because it offers a, we, we were convinced that we're going to be happier by doing the sin. Even though we know it's contrary to what the Bible says, we feel that we're going to be happier by pursuing the sin than we are in pursuing God. But the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. So we've got to live in the reality of that. Here's the next one. No matter how far you have fallen or how deep you have been broken by God's grace, you can be made whole. Praise God. That's a, that's a good statement. That's, that's what we're, we're getting at here. They spend most of the chapter, they, they confess their sins, but they spend most of the chapter just celebrating the greatness and the goodness of God. You need to bathe yourself in the greatness and the goodness of God. You need to spend hours upon hours studying God's word and listening to praise music and hanging, up with, hanging out with fired up Christians who are stirring up that, that up within you. That's so important. That's so critical. And, um, and I gave you a number of verses there you can study on your own. To think you have fallen too far or are broken too deep is to question either the power or willingness or faithfulness of our Savior. Man, he can rescue us. He does rescue us. He loves us. And it's really fighting for your delight in him. I don't know why my nose is running this morning, but it's kind of crazy. You guys have noticed that, haven't you? I said, why is his nose running up there? I must be allergic to somebody that's sitting up here or something. <laughs> My goodness. Chapter 10 basically talks about a commitment that they make. And, and at some point, you have to step across the line and make a commitment. You have to say, okay, I'm going for Jesus. I'm just not going to play, play the Christian church game of just showing up once in a while. I'm going to make a commitment. And when you begin to see this, the document, they, there's a document here, verses 1 through 27. It was a signed agreement to a new set of priorities. And there's 84 names appear on the list of, of leaders, representatives who are gathered in Jerusalem. And it was a spiritual rallying point. Here's three things that'll happen when you encounter Jesus. This is the difference that it'll make in your life. Is that, first of all, submission to the word of God. And you see that in, in chapter 10, verse 29. And it says that they joined with their brothers. So they signed on the dotted line. They're making a, a covenant, a commitment. And they joined with their brothers to walk in God's law that was given by no, Moses. I almost said noses. It's probably because my nose is, my nose is running. Um, but to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Man, they're just saying, God, I love it when you tell me how to live. Why would I ever want to live any other way? I love it. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to commit to you because I know that when I don't live according to your word, I'm trampling on your love and wisdom. You gave me this out of your love and wisdom for me. It's crazy for me to think otherwise. So we're signing on the dotted line. We're going for, for God. And then separation as the people of God. That you see this in verses 28 and 30 and 31. There's a distinctiveness. There should be a distinctiveness to your life. The more you walk with Jesus, you're going to do life different. People are going to look at you, and even you're going to do suffering different because you have your deepest pleasure in God. Suffering is not going to affect you like it affects everybody else because you may lose everything 
but Christ, you still have your pleasure in him regardless of what goes down in your life. So you're going you're gonna to do life totally different, and then the next one is you're going to support the house of God, and that's what they did. And it's interesting because in verse 38, he actually talks about the tithe, and we teach that. And in fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to want to give consistently and faithful, faithfully and hilariously, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, and you're going to want to look for opportunity to give. And, uh, and tithe is a rule of thumb. But you're going to want to give tithes, alms, and offerings. Offerings would be over above, like to our building campaign or, or to uh, missions outreach and the various uh, outreaches that we have here. But that's what you see happening in their life. We're going to take communion this morning. So here's my question for you. As we take communion, there's going to be three stations. Let me explain this because I think sometimes you've got to listen up because sometimes people don't do this right. And I think it's probably because of the tradition you come from. When you grab the bread, there will be bread. You grab that. Don't put it in your mouth, Okay. Take it and get ready to dip it in the cup. And sometimes come from different traditions. I know that people will still forget that even after I just said that this morning. And so what we'll do is that we'll have you pick another bread. Don't stick that one in your mouth, but wait. And you can chew that one up and then dip that in the cup. And so the bread represents, I hate to be so elementary here, but... Uh, but sometimes we have to do that. And so this is, this is such a sacred time. This is a wonderful time. When you can come forward and there will be bread that represents his broken body for you. And there's a cup that represents his shed blood for you. So you're going to take the bread and you don't have to dip it all the way down to your knuckles, okay? Just dip the end of it. Not that anybody has ever done that here. But just dip it and then... What, is, what are the idols in your life? You have them. If you don't know what they are, you're not in touch with what God is wanting to do in your life. What are the idols? I happen to know my wife's idols better than I know my own. That's messed up, isn't it? So what are the, what are the idols? What are you adding to God as a requirement for your happiness? And as you come up, remember this, counterfeit gods, when you fail them, they're terribly unforgiving. And even if you get them, they're terribly unfulfilling. Jesus is the only Lord that when you fail him, he forgives you. When you get him, he fulfills you. Oh my goodness. Savor his love this morning as you take communion. So as you take communion, may your affections for idols be broken by greater affections for Christ. And may your affections for Christ be awakened and nurtured by his affections for you, his broken body and shed blood in Jesus' name. Amen. As you take communion, you can go back to your seat, hang out a little bit, or you can exit, but please do that quietly. God bless you.